Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Greg Rogen with the Houston Chronicle, joined by a very special guest today, the new dean of the Houston Chronicle sports section after the retirement of John McClain, Jonathan Fagan. Mr. Fagan, I had to pay you the proper deference with that introduction, so uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this on a Wednesday, a special episode. You know, normally don't, uh, you're normally the Tuesday podcast kind of guy, so good to, good to talk to you again. Well, I appreciate this. I think I'll take Dean as a good thing. It's, it's so I, you know, I get that a lot. I walk into media rooms, and a lot of beat writers are younger than my kids, and so I am not unaware that I've done this for quite a while. You've come a long way from El Campo, sir. Let's just put it that way, you know. Well, just a little bit. Oh, Fifty-nine. So, so <laughs> uh, yeah, I started uh, my first job. Out of college was El Campo, Texas, which I liked very much. I had a very good introduction to Texas. You know, I will say it's funny, too. You come to a town like that, and I was there just a few days before the first high school football game, and you sort of get introduced around town as, here's the new sports writer. It's it's sort of like the new doctor coming to Mayberry. Which The new blacksmith, yeah. Yeah, well, I wouldn't go that far, but... (laughs) it, it's not. It's a bigger town than that now, and of course it wouldn't be that way. But they treated me that way. It was, and you know, they took me to the Booster Club barbecue where they were cooking barbecue overnight, all night, and you know, to introduce me around to the fellers. And uh, it was a great, great introduction to Texas and Texas high school football. Your current beat, Houston Rockets, just completed. Is that your? Was this your twenty fourth season on the beat? I think twenty third. Twenty third. Okay. Maybe, maybe okay. Maybe I need to figure out how to count or something. Well, I, know your first, I do. I maybe your first, your first season was ninety eight, ninety nine, right? The Scotty yes. Pippen year. Yeah, yes, the lockout was. shortened Scotty Pippen year. Right, the ninety eight, ninety nine season with no ninety eight in it. Yes, you've seen a few things on the beat. So the Rockets have finished consecutive seasons with the fewest wins in the NBA. Obviously, these are not the Rockets that were chasing the warriors for you know the last half decade before that let me i wanted to find out instead of just talking about the games on the court i wanted to ask you what's been the experience going from covering a team that's that was chasing championships for the better part of a decade to one now that's you know hoping for ping pong balls to fall the right way in the draft lottery well there's a lot of differences but they're all sort of overshadowed by the biggest difference that we're all experienced in the COVID era. We don't go to the locker rooms. You don't get to know guys to the same degree. You don't get to have conversations. You know, so here's not just guys who are new to the NBA, but they're new to the Rockets. Normally, you get to know each other. And of course, it's not like when I started, when practice days, locker rooms were open, and you'd have much more conversation uh, rather than just interviews, rather than I ask you answer relationship, it, you'd have conversations. You'd get to know people. You'd talk to them. Uh, I, of course, I, then I was closer to their age, but it's more than that. It's the walls. Uh, there's there's much greater walls established between media and, and the athlete now than there were then. But then the COVID area just added so many more to them all of which has nothing to do with the fact that they used to be a team chasing championships and now they're a team starting from scratch. And so that's a huge difference 
before you get to that. Then the other part of it. And so I don't get to know kind of some of the differences I probably would be experiencing if it was normal in the other ways, which is just so far from. Uh, there's some differences. You, you can't. There's so many. Who's the ref tonight? Who's um, filling in for the one guy who's going to be out with a sprained ankle and how that might affect winning tonight's game? Or those are big issues in there, or what went wrong, or the guy who picked up one key loose ball late in the game. All those things mattered much more when every win mattered. Now, it's when it's all about growth, you have to give the, what's, what's the expression, the 30,000 foot view, 10,000 foot view, whatever it is, you have to do that. Everything has to be in the context of what this means for the future, rather than what this means for tonight's game or the game that was just played. Um, so it, it's all different there. Uh, it, you have to, you can't overreact to what went wrong. And then the other thing that it has been so prevalent, it gets very repetitive and it's a challenge to make the stories not repetitive. Um, because yeah, they lost, they had too many turnovers and they had no pick and roll defense. Gee, it must be Tuesday or Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. A day that so, ends in Y. Right. And so uh, avoiding that, although I do remember that in the 65-win season, when they had the, I think it was a 15-game and a 12-game winning streak. And the first of the two long winning streaks, they were winning every game by double digits. And it was, it was repetitive then, too. It was like, okay, you know, I wrote this Tuesday. I got to come up with something different. Uh, and... But this was more so, much more so. And this season was very different from the previous season, where this, and this was different in a good way. And last year, they, they were running out the clock. It was just a lost season. They were an incredible number of injuries, 43 players, 30 starting lineups, uh, guys playing regular minutes who were not going to be in the NBA in a year. Now it's about people who, could be the core of this franchise's future. Uh, Jalen Green being the most obvious one. But so there's more relevance to everything that happened this year than the previous year of the rebuild. What's the biggest difference you've noticed? And I realize this is a buzzword that gets thrown up, thrown around a lot in sports. The culture with the rock within the Rockets, uh, you know, transitioning from the Daryl Morey regime to Rafael Stone. Well, I mean, I don't know that the difference is about Daryl and Rafael as much. I mean, Rafael's more hands-on in terms of always there around. He doesn't dictate anything during the season. Uh, and Daryl did not really either. Daryl believed in that very strongly, that he'll provide all kinds of information and do with it as you will. Uh, Rick Adelman you know, what he chose to do with it was leave it over there where Daryl put it down. <laughs> and, you know, and Daryl kind of understood that, that at his stage of his career, he could see everything that Daryl was providing. Uh, but both guys believe in let the coach coach. Uh, don't dictate starting lineups. Don't dictate playing time. It's just not right for this team, but it won't be philosophically right to do. So from their standpoint, I don't think, the culture change is because of the general manager. But 
there was a mindset of, okay, this was very much James Harden's team. And, and, you know, to back up a little bit, Daryl's taken a lot of criticism for empowering Harden as he did. Uh, Sort of the tone of it is you created a monster where it's possible. We'll never know. Maybe he created one of the all-time great players because that's what made James play at the level that he played. James became an MVP, he, you know, a, a top five MVP guy for like five straight years, six straight years. Uh, I thought he deserved it a couple of the years. He did not get it. Some of this, hey, it worked. You know, it, it, it sort of reminds me of something Jeff Van Gundy said way back when, when people were critis- criticizing, I think it was Byron Scott for delegating so much offense and defense and, well, he's not really the coach. He delegates one guy to run the offense, one guy to run the defense. And Van Gundy's line is, he got the New Jersey Nets to the finals in back-to-back years. He's the one who's right. Whatever he's doing, it was the right thing to do because they got in the finals and they're the New Jersey Nets. Well, the same thing maybe can be said uh, of Daryl, quote, creating a monster in James Harden. Yeah, well, he was a monster for 48 minutes a night, too. So that is a long way of saying that's a culture change to where it's not chase the championship, get guys who sort of support the star. It was more build from scratch. They're all in this together. Even Jalen Green, everybody knows he's the face of the franchise, the hope of the future. But no, you're you're one of these young guys all coming in together it is more of a partnership feeling. Uh, and and that, that's true with Stephen Silas and Rafael Stone, to where there is more of a partnership attitude, although Rafael doesn't do coaching, although, as Stephen likes to say, he's a hooper. He could talk basketball all day, every day. And, you know, he could talk about plays and how they run and whatever. But he doesn't coach. He doesn't dictate. And Stephen doesn't make draft picks. You know, he'll evaluate with him, but he won't. So the separation, but there is more of a feeling of a partnership throughout the uh, the basketball side of the operation. And then the other change is Tad Brown was president on the basketball, on the business side, and he ran that for the two different owners he worked for. But he was also part of basketball. He could he got to know and got very close with Yao Ming, very, very close with James Harden. Uh, he was part of recruiting free agents. That's not Gretchen's job. Gretchen is president of business operations, and she's got her hands full there. No question. Um, you mentioned Jeff Van Gundy. You've covered some memorable coaches, some interesting coaches here in Houston. There's Rudy Tomjanovich, Jeff Van Gundy, Rick Adelman, Kevin McHale. Mike D'Antoni, and now Stephen Salas. I'm not counting, of course, J.B. Bickerstaff, who's the interim. But do you have a favorite among that group that you just enjoy talking basketball with? Or was there a guy that was particularly good to deal with from that group? <laughs> well, I mean, different varieties of great to deal with. I've been very lucky. Stephen Salas is the most patient man on earth. And so how, the, how he could be so patient and every day be so good at just talking it out uh, is great. Uh, Rudy Tomjanovich is kind of the gold standard. There's a reason 
the Basketball Writers Association names the award for the most cooperative coach, the Rudy Tomjanovich Award, which it, it was great. I got a lot of influence in, in getting that. And then I got to be the guy who told him, hey, guess what? We're naming this award after you. The other thing, uh, so he was great. Uh, it was a different time. Uh, I can't go into all the differences we all know, you know, of a pre-internet time covering the league. And in a lot of ways, pre-cell phones. Rudy was an incredibly cooperative guy, but he really did think a cell phone, at that time he thought, not anymore. At that time, he thought a cell phone was a portable answering machine. You know, it would, he'd never pick the thing up, but he'd get his message and then he'd call you back. Uh, so that's very different. All of that said, I said this, there was a time, the, the award for the most cooperative player, player who combines cooperation with the media with excellence on the court. And somebody said, and I repeated quite a bit, you could give that award to Manu Ginobili every year and never be wrong. He was so good to deal with. He, he was so well-spoken and he, so thoughtful and cooperative on a team in which if you never cooperated, the team would support you. That's fine. And so you could give that award to Manu every year. I don't think he ever got it and always be right. You could have given the Rudy Tomjanovich Award to Mike D'Antoni every single year and never have been wrong. I mean, that guy, uh, there are several stories I tell about that. There was a time we're in Minnesota and it's post game. And it's one of these times where I ask the only questions. I ask like five in a row. Nobody says anything else. Tracy Hughes, who does a great job for the, for the media, she really helps us. Uh, Rockets Media Relations Vice President or whatever her title is. Uh, she turns to the group and says, does anybody else have anything? And I said, well, I have to think, ask questions for my off day story, but I haven't thought of one yet. And D'Antoni, without missing a beat, says, well, when you think of one, call me and we'll talk then. And the Minnesota media, who at the time was used to dealing with Tibbs, just jaw dropped. Just he could be that cooperative. I called him the next day and it was actually a good story idea. It was the year that uh, Steve Clifford and Ty Lue both had to take a leave of absence to get healthy, that they worked. So I talked to Mike about uh, how do you stay sane? What, what are your tricks and tactics and everything else? And we talked for an hour and a half on an off day after flying from Minnesota to Portland. He, he was that good. And then the other example of when he chose to have media availability before practice. It was summertime. He thought that would be a good idea. He asked what I thought of that. Uh, and now, in truth, he probably would have done it regardless of what I thought of that. But he wanted me to know. He wanted me to be part of it. And I said, well, my only concern was if you have a guy coming back from an injury and did he practice? How did he look? How did he feel? If we talk before practice, we won't know. He said, well, just call me. I'll let you know. <laughs> just, that was him. Every day, not just in July when everybody is undefeated. He he was that way and he'd be that way if I called him right now. Uh, yeah, I had limited interactions with him, but he seemed like a great guy to deal with. I want to ask you about an event 20 years ago, early in your time on the beat that kind of made the Rockets an international brand. 2002, they, against, you know, it's pretty steep odds, they win the draft lottery for the right to draft Yao Ming. From your recollection of those events, what was the Rockets' status 
you know, or, or perception internationally before then. And of course it blew up after then with, you know, the NBA's emergence in China. What are some of your memories from that time? Well, I mean, no team at that time was as big as many teams are internationally. The NBA had put in some roots all over Europe and there's stories about that too, but in Asia and certainly in China, nothing, not, not even, nothing. The, the least popular team in China now would be more well-known and popular than any team prior to Yao Ming. I do remember Leslie Alexander telling me he is going to be the biggest sports star in the world, bigger than Michael Jordan, bigger than Tiger Woods. And people go, ah, 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 ah. But when you think of the sheer numbers, of course he was right. I mean, there was it, he, he was more than a popular athlete in China. He was a representative of China opening up to the world. It, it was much bigger story than basketball. You know, even through the summer, how huge it was, the negotiations of what it would take for the Shanghai Sharks and the China Basketball Association to grant his release to play in the NBA. It was enormous. And when we first went there for the China Games and just seeing the throngs of people filling the streets or around the arena, uh, now that's customary. If, if Steph Curry goes there, probably next time he will, and he has before, when he goes there, that's what he will see. But that was the first. Yao Ming and, you know, China, the world's most populous country, just absolutely embraced everything, rockets and most things NBA beginning then. You know, that was pre-social media. What was it like for you in terms of like the feedback you would get? Did you start to hear from a lot more uh, readers in China or, you know, other other places abroad? Yeah. I mean, it was different obviously. And then social media wasn't that far off. It wasn't as expansive, but I think it was the first China games where, you know, we had, we found a way around the great firewall of China of getting, uh, getting on Twitter and being able to see things. So I'm sure people there did, but uh, no, you know, we got to know, and then a lot of Chinese media came over and covered Yao Ming and the Rockets as a beat. And it was great because through my years on the Rockets beat, there wasn't another beat writer. So I had guys go to dinner and talk to, ask good questions uh, besides, you know, on the road um, because of the Chinese media, especially the second year. The first year, they weren't as much basketball writers, but they were trying to cover basketball. They co did cover it as a sports team. They weren't covering the 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 United States or the NBA or any bigger picture of social issues. They were covering basketball, but they weren't basketball writers as much as the second year and for years on um, some guys who were really good sports writers. I want to, uh, as part of my extensive research that I do for this podcast, you know, I, I dug into your, um, your, dug into your byline file a bit. So I wanted to bring, I wanted to ask you for your uh, recollections on a couple of, uh, notable stories that you wrote. February 22nd, 1994, you had an A1 story in the Houston Chronicle about four teams from, from the four schools from the Southwest Conference that were going to join up with the Big Eight and eventually it would eventually form the Big 12. 
How did that story come about? That is because that is the pre-internet era where you learned about something when it hit your driveway in the morning. <laughs> That's true. Um, and many people hit back on that one. Um, David Barron and I both heard whispers from different people about it. And uh, David said, you know, he, we both knew his source. Like I knew him personally. And of course, obviously David did. And then I heard some people talking about it. And I had a couple sources within the league who confirmed a lot of things. Um, I can't remember which story you're referring to when it actually happened or when I wrote the story that they were negotiations for it to happen. This is the one where it actually happened. Oh, like okay. This headline was four schools were joining. Yeah, because I think you said February. In, yeah. I think I wrote the story. I'm pretty sure I wrote it in December. might have been late November that they were in talks of it. And when it was really gaining steam. And that's what I was talking about with David okay. given, hearing things. And I heard things. And then I made some calls and I had a couple of good sources. That was when we first wrote the story that it was in the works. And uh, I do remember I went to Southwest Conference Board of Governors meeting. I think that's what it was called. Um, where presidents of the different universities and chancellors met. And it was a really tense thing. And they let the media in. <clears throat> and we sat around a conference table with the chairman, who was the chancellor at TCU. And he just stared at me, glared at me. If looks could kill, I'd be long gone. And he said, the whole talk of the Big 12 is the figment of one sports writer with a limited imagination, just staring at me. And I do remember I came back that night, I wrote my story from DFW, came back and went to a Chronicle Christmas party. <laughs> I was like the world's biggest grouch. I was angry and, you know, I, I, I can't remember, you know, who who kind of called me on it, but I, Dan Cunningham was the sports editor at the time. And they, I think people enjoyed my anger uh, at the Christmas party because of, I can't remember the guy's name anymore, the chancellor at TCU. But I do remember that line, the figment of the imagination of one sports writer with a limited imagination and just looking at me. The original story is December 5th, 1993. The headline was SWC Big 8 Talks Take New Tack. Proposed new conference may exclude Houston and Rice. So I can't imagine that went over very well in Houston. And they didn't know. And then, you know, they, they found out about the negotiations from that story. And uh, I remember some of the conversations with the, the leadership at Houston, and especially at Rice. I don't know why I remember those conversations more, but they were looking for information. And uh you know, we didn't get it, obviously, from them because they were being left out of the new conference, but also of the negotiations. So as the Big 12, I mean, with Texas and Oklahoma leaving in coming years, it's quite the quite the shift from uh, way back then. I loved that league. I, I loved covering the Southwest Conference. Back then, we covered it. We, we had a, a Rice writer, I, I believe, at the time of the end of the Southwest Conference. That was Neil Farmer. And we had Jerry Wizig, the great Jerry Wizig on uh, U of H. And then I would just go pick uh, whatever I wanted to do around the rest of the Southwest Conference. And we covered it like in the old days, like long, long before my time, where it was as if it was the only league in town. Like there wasn't an NBA or because, you know, the Southwest Conference goes back before the NBA and before MLB and, and 
in Houston. And uh, so anywhere, every game was important. The starting quarterback at Tech was important. And the teams wanted that coverage in Houston. You know, they needed that coverage. Uh, you, you walk in and they were glad you were there. And, you know, you tell them, I would like to talk to this guy today and I'd like to talk to that guy today. And that's what you would do because newspapers were that important and coverage in Houston was that important. And we did cover them as, you know, like we were covering Congress. And so uh, it was a great time. And then the first year of the Big 12, first several years, it was fun to cover. And I do remember we jumped all over covering basketball, of Big 12 basketball. And I covered 16 Kansas games. And some of it was because I would be up in that part of the league and, okay, I could get to the Kansas game on Tuesday and then still cover Texas at Nebraska on Thursday, whatever. And I covered 16 Kansas games, and they went 16-0 with me in the building. And that was a really good team. You know, Paul Pierce and Jacques Ray LaFrance, yeah. Ray LaFrance, Jared Haas. Uh, really, really good team. Uh, Scott Pollard, I think. Um, and then Texas wins in, in the first two rounds of the uh, NCAA tournament. And so, okay, you got to cover Texas and, and the uh, Sweet 16. And so I get off Kansas. All right, we're going to cover them. Obviously, we're going to go to Kansas. Kansas gets blown out. They're out of the tournament by 1130 in the morning on Thursday in Syracuse, I believe it was. And uh, Kansas ends up going to the Elite Eight and losing, I think, to Arizona, which would go on and win the national championship. And uh, so... I went 16 and 0 with Kansas that year, and uh, they ended up losing when I didn't cover them. And I, I Kansas did okay this year when you weren't in the building too. So yeah, that's true. Oh, they have on other occasions as well. And I will say, Roy Williams had a reputation of being more helpful with out of town media, national media, than maybe the locals who were there every day. A lot of guys did that, but uh, he especially favored Houston for a reason that uh, I don't think if I gave you the rest of the, the month, you could guess. He, he was always an Oilers fan. And Roy Williams was an Oilers fan because, I can't even believe it, but it's, this is true. He told me this in his office one day because of Columbia Blue, which was very similar to Carolina Blue. And so as a child, he adopted the Oilers. Wow. And so whenever I came to town, he was always really kind to me. And, you know, I, I did cover the final four. This is after I'd stopped covering colleges for many years. But uh, so I was covering the Rockets, but I covered the final four when he won the national championship with, I, I believe, in, in Glendale uh, with North Carolina. And it was good. Against Gonzaga. Like, yeah. Yeah. I felt like I owed him one. And so uh, he, he got his national championship with me there. That's very interesting. Okay, I've got another another byline for you. June 14th, 1994, you were in New York covering the, helping cover the Rockets in the NBA Finals. I can't believe you're going to hockey. But for some reason, you were at one of the most famous NHL games ever, Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final between the Rangers and Canucks at Madison Square Garden. First of all, how did you end up covering that game? Well, for the reasons you said. Not like there was hockey in Houston at the time. And what was that experience like? Because that was a remarkable two months in New York sports. 
because they had the Knicks and the Rangers both going to game seven of the championship series in their leagues. The Rangers had not won a Stanley Cup in 54 years. They had a 3-1 lead on the Canucks. It's game seven. Everyone in New York is panicking. It was, I mean, quite quite a sporting time in the Big Apple. Yeah, it was, it was well, fantastic would be the answer. It was, it was so great. Being in the building that night, you know, there's times, and I try to keep this, and people tell me I've succeeded at that, that every now and then just to look around the arena and think, this is all right. You know, I, I, I get paid to be in the building. And, and Final Fours are, are among those times. I, I always felt that way. Like, yeah, take a minute. This is all right. It's pretty great that you are here today. That one is one that I will always look back on. Just being in the building. I loved, and I, I could still feel it. I could see it from where I sat that night. And I could uh, still feel it. What it felt like before the game. This It was as electric a feeling in the arena as you will ever experience uh, before that game. And there's nothing louder than when a goal is scored in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But I'd say nothing louder than when a goal is scored in game seven in New York, in the garden, and where I'm sitting all the way up there. Uh, I mean, just like a, it, it was incredible uh, feeling in that building. And you try and get a sense of it and try and impart that to your story. Uh, and, you know, it was great. Some of the rocket ones, you know, game seven, uh, what would that be about five, six days later was tremendous in the summit, just great feeling, but the electricity in the building that night was, I, I think unsurpassed of anything I've experienced. Yeah. That's I saw your name on that. I was like, wow, I have got to ask him about this, uh, Sometime when we do a podcast, because that's one of the most most memorable hockey games ever, I, in, at least in my opinion. It felt that way. It felt monumental. Uh, and it, as you mentioned, the whole town, uh, New York, you know, the old line uh, of it's the biggest small town in the world, uh, you know, where nothing matters. But what happens there, they, they had that feeling at that time because of the Knicks and Rangers that this is and you couldn't help but feel it in the city. How did you get a credential? Because I, I can't imagine it's that easy to get a credential to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final when you haven't covered the team all year long. <laughs> I would think the Raid LeMans did something. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Uh, I'm going to just – I did nothing. I showed up at the headquarters – at the media hotel and they handed it to me. I'm sure uh, Reid, who was then the assistant sports editor, is now our sports editor. Uh, I'm sure Reid did what Reid does. Okay. Uh, last thing I want to close with, you wrote a book about the Rockets a few years ago, 100 Things Rockets Fans Should Know or Do Before They Die. What are some of the things that got left on the, some of the interesting things that got left on the cutting room floor from that book? I have no idea. There was 100 things. I mean, a whole lot of stuff. I, I, the thing that would jump to be in mind was this was before the end of the James Harden era, before the bubble season. And that would have been a good finish to it because that sort of wrapped up an era where, where you knew, you knew in the bubble, this is it. They, they succeed or it's probably over to some degree. I, I remember even writing the advance of game seven against the Thunder of everything is on the line, all of it. You know, it's all going to come apart if they lose this. And then they won and they 
win and they're super impressive in game one and then they crashed. And so against the Lakers. that would have been good to have. But no, it was there were some chapters there that I thought now in hindsight, the Joe Chi chapter maybe we could have lived without. I, I'm trying to remember who that guy even was. He got a chapter in the book. All right. Um, so what are you what are you doing now? Are you just doing some deep dives on Jabari Smith and Chet Holmgren and uh, the likes of those guys? Well, we will. Not yet. We're, we're going to do a daily look at uh, each player and you know what we've learned about them. Their their the assessment of the season, looking ahead to next year and their future, what it means. We'll do that every day. Uh, Daniel Lerner and I are doing that. And then, uh, you know, yes, then we start doing a lot of draft preparation. The lottery is May 17th. And, and it's, it's a good deal of time between the lottery. And we'll know, you know, where the Rockets pick. Uh, they're going to pick in the top five. We know that. And they'll have the 16th or 17th pick from the Nets. And so because of the great spread between the two picks, you have to look at a lot of people and that'll be fun. And it's different though. It would have been nice. I look forward to covering playoffs again. I was saying that I feel stronger and fresher at the end of this season than I'm used to because even though it's been a couple of years without playoffs, there's a whole lot more with. So it's like, wait a minute, you know, why is the season over now? You know, why am I in town during all this pollen time? I'm supposed to be on the road for half of every week. Uh, so I'm not used to this yet. Uh, probably, maybe I'll never get used to it. Maybe they'll be back in the playoffs before I've had enough time to get used to a season ending in mid-April. You know, you did a podcast this season with a Rockets fan who may or may not share a last name with you. <laughs> but um, what is the, how have you gauged the fan interest in this rebuild process so far? You know, I'm glad you, you know, it's funny. And for people who missed it, there was a week on the road and Daniel, Daniel Lerner and I do the podcast every Tuesday and talk rocket news, business, whatever. And she had an assignment that day. And so I needed a step in. So I thought I'd bring in my son who is not, you know, adorable 12 year old rocket fan. He's a 30 year old man and he speaks very well, better than his father to represent Rocket fans and how Rocket fans feel about this and everything else. I, I think he was pretty representative, but I also talked to many, many other Rocket fans, obviously. And I think, you know, Rafael Stone patted himself on the back for this, and I think deservedly so, that the Rockets have thoroughly expressed what the plan is. They have a plan, and they've shared it so extensively that Rocket fans have bought in. You get Twitter fans, and they're a little different maybe, but I, I've said it a, a lot of times during the year, the Rockets could be down 17 with three minutes left, and K.J. Martin will have some sensational dunk, and the place will go crazy, cheering. And people leave, and nobody boos when some of the bad stretches where they were getting blown out. Um, yeah, they finished the year much more exuberant, with much more exuberance, the Rockets did. They played... They lost out of seven games, but I think they played with a good deal of heart and things. But there were times they didn't. And yet fans, that's cool. We get it. Uh, I, they did as good a job of getting fans on board with the rebuild as we have seen. Uh, and you see it in the arena all the time. And people don't just take, you know, there were times in the really good years 
you know, the Rockets would be down three at the last timeout and people would be leaving. And you're thinking, you know, they're down three. I think they can have a chance to maybe pull this off. Now with this team, they could be down 18 at the last timeout. <laughs> people generally are staying and they're cheering. And you know, something, it was remarkable to see. And yeah, I mean, teams will always say, our fans are great. You know, especially when media asks that question. Well, what do you expect the general manager or the coach or the player? Our fans stink. Oh, they're, of course they're going to say that. But I thought I was very impressed that fans were on board this year. What will be interesting is next year, the Rockets could have one more year of, it's all about growth. It's all about development. They, you know, if they do well in the lottery and they pick in the top three, they'll not only get a guy who can be a foundational piece, maybe less of a chance of being generational than a Cade Cunningham or Jalen Green, but certainly foundational piece, but also a teenager and also good enough that you got to play him through the growing pains. And it's the last year they have total control of their draft pick before Oklahoma City starts having control of their first round pick. And it's the year before they have tons and tons of cap space. They could say, hey, we need one more year. of It's about development and growth. Will fans stay on board for another, if this all happens this way, for another losing season, another lottery season, or, you know, worst record in the league type of season, uh, even if it's not technically the worst record? That remains to be seen, but I think they've been uh, on board. Jonathan Fagan, thank you for your time. This has been a lot of fun going down memory lane and uh, discussing various topics. Uh, look forward to reading your Rockets coverage uh, throughout the offseason, leading into the draft lottery and the draft itself. You can catch all that at houstonchronicle.com slash Rockets. That's it for this edition of the Texas Sports Nation podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.